we can't just be fighting this on our own, you know, so it's got, it's got to be coming from others as well. And I think that's, that's a crucial, crucial part of being an ally. So starting from, from sharing what I have learned and unlearned and relearned allows them to kind of let down their guards a little bit. Um, I would hope and inspire them to, to look at themselves as well. And we all know that there's, there's no growth that has ever come from being comfortable. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today's episode, Julie has a conversation with two impressive people rather than just one. It is delving into issues of racism and white privilege. In particular, how training is being offered now increasingly mm-hmm. to help all of us Think about how we can um, be more self-conscious and aware of some of our biases. And so I talked to two women who both deliver um, training uh, on anti-racism. And one is Sadiqa Jessa, who listeners might remember, uh, I interviewed in season four in a podcast we called Courage of Your Convictions. It was it was a very, very highly listened to episode, still is being listened to. It described how Sadiqa, who at the time was holding a, a very important position, Secretary General of the Organization of North American Shia Ithna Ashiri Muslim Communities, which was a global leadership position. When she announced that her son was going to get married to another man, she endured an enormous amount of criticism um, and some hostility, and she left that position as a result. Uh, And in her usual inimitable style, Sadiqa simply pivoted and then became an activist for LGBTQ recognition and rights in the Muslim community. So we'll put that podcast up on the page. But since then, uh, Sadiqa has founded an organization called Wider Lens, Uh, which delivers training workshops to the faith community, corporate, not-for-profit sectors. And it focuses on training in emotional intelligence, anti-racism and diversity. So I was really curious to to listen to what Sadiqa had learned so far from her experiences. She's delivered now almost 100 workshops. And our second guest is somebody that uh, I think regular listeners of the podcast will be familiar with the wonderful Moya McAllister, our colleague at NSRLP, who has been communications manager with us since 2019. But Moya is also very heavily involved in uh, community arts and social justice initiatives. Uh, one of the things that she does, and I know has been really enjoying getting back into as the pandemic has kind of hopefully been uh, thinning out a bit uh, is uh, her work with uh, Windsor's Arts Collective Theatre. She's board vice president and marketing director, and they put on some wonderful productions in Windsor. So if you ever get a chance, come check those out. But Moya is also now board director of Black Women of Forward Action, which is a Windsor-based group that advocates for anti-Black racism initiatives at both the community and municipal levels and uh, supports Black women entrepreneurs and students. Also, over the last two years, Moya has been 
been developing training workshops on anti-racism for our local Windsor community. And she has been working with her partners in that uh, initiative. They've been working with not-for-profits and local government and other organizations to offer those workshops. So it seemed to us like a great idea to bring these two amazing women together to talk about what they're trying to achieve in their anti-racism workshops and how they manage those awkward, complicated, difficult conversations that we're trying to have about the assumptions that we all carry about race and privilege. So let's listen. Moya, Sadika, I'm really happy to be having this conversation with both of you and actually really interested in hearing what you're going to say uh, because you're both doing such important work at the moment and work that I don't really know very much about. So I know I'm going to learn a lot from listening to you. So could I ask each of you to begin by talking a little bit about what has motivated you to begin to develop these workshops that you're delivering now on bias and unconscious prejudice. And, you know, each of you in turn, maybe you could say something about what your most important goals are um, and what you were hoping to achieve when you started to do this work. So, Sadika, let's begin with you. Um, thank you, Julie, for giving me the opportunity. And, uh, you know, it always starts with a personal story for me. So coming in as an immigrant with all the cultural biases layered on with religious dogma and then raising children here and finding that I have to learn and relearn some of the ideologies that I so valiantly led and defended. So when you start to reconcile your values, that conflict with the well-being of a human being, you have to peel off the prejudices that were buried deep. So my Can you give me an example? Can you say so, something about um, like when you were raising your kids, what, what sort of springs to mind as an example of what you had to relearn? So for example, my kids didn't have any handcuffs being hanging around with people of different cultures and races and colors. They treated them the same way, whereas I was a little bit guarded. I would be guarded. I always wondered, like, but they so flowed from one culture to another to, you know, any kinds of people They had those. And I was trying to really hold on to those cultural values that they just didn't even have. Right. Because and of coming as a, as a first generation. As, as a first generation. Yes. My goal has always been, been to that every human being should feel safe in this world to be able to reach the fullest of their potential. So that's my goal. Right, so it came out of your experience of, of raising your kids here and seeing how the second generation seemed to go with the flow in a, in a more intuitive way. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Moya, what about for you? Well, I think in 2020, with everything going on with George Floyd, I get kept getting a lot of a lot of uh, my friends, my white friends who were calling me and just wanting to have like these discussions and these talks about, uh, you know, I, I know at one point, uh, you know, everybody there, there was, you know, like this hashtag and these posts going on, like check in on your black friends. 
And so I was getting a lot of check-ins and um, I ended up sitting down with a, a couple women and we all have different diverse backgrounds. You know, one's, uh, one's a lawyer, uh, one's a, a, an actress, uh, another one facilitates a lot of inclusive, like diversity training. Four of us sat down and chatted one day and we're like, how can we start having these discussions on a bigger scale? How can we bring the, those discussions into different organizations and just make people feel more comfortable and having it in a, in a group setting as opposed to these one-on-one discussions that a lot of people are having with their friends. With your friends. Exactly. So, and we thought, you know, why don't we try and put something together with all of our backgrounds? How can we make it really innovative? How can we use our own personal skills to kind of, to make it a little bit more, uh, more accessible to everybody, but we wanted to add something different. So, like I said, with with the, with the one lady that has a drama background and I, and so do I, we decided to come up with these workshops where we incorporate uh, drama techniques uh, to kind of really bring in different scenarios. And that allows people not only to have that discussion and think about it, but also to be able to figure out ways that they can change what happened in that scenario and like, look at, you know, how could I have reacted differently? What could I have said differently? And, uh, and I think that that's kind of where it all stemmed from for, for me. Well, you know, what's so interesting about what you've each said is that although I'm talking to both of you as teachers, teachers of anti-bias, anti-prejudice, um, you are actually talking about each of you having goals for your own learning uh, as motivating you to start doing this. I think that's really fascinating because as a teacher myself, I always feel like I do the best job when I'm learning as well. (laughs) So let's let's talk a bit about the participants in the workshops that both of you deliver. Um, You know, the most sort of, I suppose, basic question to begin with would be, you know, what are you hoping that by the end of your workshops, your participants will be thinking and feeling? But I want as well, you know, to ask you to explore a little bit how people deal with their discomfort, because, you know, let's be clear, for white folks like me, there is a lot of discomfort in discovering that we have all these layers of prejudice and assumptive belief that we didn't necessarily recognize we had before. And, you know, there is a tendency, I think, sometimes for people to feel defensive or to feel badly. Um, Whereas I'm sure from what you've both said and what I know about the work you're doing, you want people to feel empowered and positive. So Moya, let's, let's maybe start with you. What do you want people to be thinking and feeling and how might you deal with those more, you know, difficult discomforts? Mm -hmm. So, I think for us, we, we, we knew that the conversations were going to be uncomfortable and difficult. So we went in with the fact that we wanted to make sure that the space was going to be comfortable. We, we kept everybody in a circle. We'd have these check-ins with everybody every 20 minutes or so where we would ask them, you know, how are you feeling? You know, we just, we just covered uh, Canadian black history um, or we just covered this section. We just want to do a general check-in on, you know, what are you feeling in your heart? What are your feeling in your head? You know, what action, like, you know, just what actions do you feel you need, you need to take coming out of this conversation that we just had. And I felt like that kind of, you know, as the sessions continued and as, you know, we got into the first hour, the second hour, they became more and more open to actually telling us how they were truly feeling. Having those little check-ins at that point just gave them a chance to just reflect and just kind of come with, come within themselves. And it's okay like 
yeah, are you angry? Are you sad? Are you disappointed? Like, let's talk about it because we wanted to know those because then we could, we were able to cater the conversation a little bit more and lead it better. Um, once we actually knew what was going on within their selves. Within right. themselves. And, and, you know, I'm curious, Moya, again, as a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. it's sometimes very difficult, as you say, you know, probably this would, this would change as a workshop would progress, but certainly at the beginning when people don't feel very comfortable mm-hmm. or they're not feeling very trusting, um, you know, how how would you try to encourage people to say, for example, well, you know, I'm feeling really pissed off about that or that makes me feel angry. I mean, something that would be, you know, not necessarily a popular inverted yeah. commas remark to make. How would how would you support people to be that to be honest and authentic? Well, we were. Uh, all the women on, we started off by being extremely honest with them. We started off with how we were feeling. If we set the pace that we were going to be extremely open with them and we said, you know, ask us anything. We are here to have a conversation. So Sadika, you know, one of the things that I, I always think about when looking at the ways in which this kind of work is being delivered is just how uh, toxic it has become in our culture, not with every part of the culture, but in many parts of that culture, uh, Canadian culture, to be called a racist or to be called someone with prejudices. And so what we're asking people to do is to acknowledge something that for years and years and years, we've all practiced trying to pretend we weren't, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, same issue. What do you do to try to, um, you know, help your participants deal with that discomfort? And what are you hoping that they will be feeling and thinking by the end of the workshop? So in following along the lines of what Moya shared is really, I think, sharing my own vulnerabilities with the group. You know, people are more willing to allow you to learn from them if you put yourself first out there. So I think sharing that, starting from, from sharing what I have learned and unlearned and relearned allows them to kind of let down their guards a little bit, um, I would hope, and inspire them to, to look at themselves as well. And we all know that there's, there's no growth that has ever come from being comfortable. I feel that in order for unconscious bias and prejudices to become conscious, making those conscious is going to be uncomfortable because now you've discovered something about yourself that, whoa, yikes, did I do that? Really? You know, what's so interesting is that you're you're both trying to turn something that we're socialized to think of as a negative thing, a bias, a prejudice, into something that can be used as a point of growth, as a point of, of moving forward. And I think that's I think in many ways, that's that's one of the hardest parts about accepting this. You know, I think that turning that negative feeling into something that we can own and feel okay about and acknowledge is is really a huge, a huge challenge of what you're doing. One of the things that I I really appreciate from our group is that uh, we we do talk about our own personal biases as well, like the women on on the on the uh, on on the team. And, you know, one of the women, she uh, a black woman who has a black son um, who has been raising her black son. And she said she was like, there was this one time I was walking down the street. I was by myself. It was late at night and there was a gentleman following me 
and he was black. And she's like, my initial reaction was to fear, to fear it. And she was just like, and then I had to take a step back and say, oh my gosh, why? Why am I that? Why am I going there automatically? And so she was just like, you know, I, I just, I am raising. A, She's like, also a, subject to those exactly those assumptions and, we and biases. Yes, we talk yeah. about how those biases, like they filter into all cultures. It's not, it's not a just like, oh, you know, you know, white people are biased and unprejudiced, and these people over here are biased and prejudiced. No, it's everybody has them yeah. everybody has those biases and so i think that that just kind of builds that that builds that more safe space when mm. we all kind of talk about our own i'm you know very interested in in understanding more about how you know we each of us get a sense of our own privilege including for people who would ordinarily say of course i'm not privileged you know i had a high school education and i i have a minimum wage job but you know there are so many layers here so how do, how do you deal with that one of the things that we ask is, um, can you easily find hair care products um, and salons for your type of hair? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that was a big thing for everybody. And you know, like I I would tell the story of having to go to specific shoppers for the one little baby section that has a couple hair products for my hair, but it's slim pickings. It's extremely expensive, and not every shoppers has it. So I said I was just like, you know, that's the stuff that we're talking about when we're talking about privilege. We're not yeah. talking about this big, you know, who who's living in this mansion versus who's living you know in an apartment over here you know it's 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 that it's that right down to that systemic level of of privilege that I think when we have those conversations we need to get to and then people and then it's like a light bulb goes turns on for people and they're like oh okay that's what you mean when you're talking about privilege right so it's really the things that we are less likely to notice because we take them for granted because they're part of our lives when I go into uh, a drugstore there are always hair care products for you know my kind of hair Um, and I wouldn't even think about that I would just assume it so would you say one way of thinking about privilege is that privilege relates to whatever you feel most comfortable about That's uh, that's a beautiful way to put it, Julie, because I think um, privilege does give us comfort, isn't it? And that's why it's so easy to take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so and so intuitive to protect it as well, because it's our comfort place. Exactly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, you know, it's funny that you say that, because one of the challenges that the biggest challenge that we find is that the change, you know, going to the next level. Well, how do I change that? You can acknowledge this. Well, how do I change? Because change is difficult, right? And, and, and there's a perfectly good reason, scientific reason behind why it's difficult to accept change because our brain loves safety as well, right? They, they, they love, it's lazy. It wants to stay where it, it always is. So changing something is going to take some conscious effort, some deep, time and work to it right so one of the ways that we want to do that is like putting in some application exercises so you know one of the ways that we kind of demonstrate some of that in a simple simple way is that we would give for example a group of people more lego parts to make a house with and another one less and they don't know which one's getting more or less and how they do 
deal with that. It's just at a really practical level. As uh, to I what played that, that game like. with students as well. And it's absolutely fascinating because the yeah. people with more never, and I must have used that particular exercise, you know, dozens and dozens of times. Not once do the people who have more Lego parts realize that they have more than the other people, but the people who have less Lego parts are painfully aware. Such a small practical exercise. Let's talk a bit about you know, practical consequences, practical outcomes. And one of the things that you both have said that you really want to talk a bit about as an example of a practical outcome, and, and I certainly am really interested to hear what you want to say about this, is how would you try to equip the people in your workshops to be an ally of people and groups that have less power than they do? What would you, what would you suggest to them are ways to be a good ally. Moya, do you, do you want to start on this? Sure. So um, I always, you know, we always end our workshops with, with tips on how, how they can be in an ally um, for racial equality. And um, one of the things, one of the tips that we always give is um, to take time to analyze your own biases um, and, and your own contributions to racism, um, as well as your relationships with, uh, with people of color. Nobody wants to be called a racist. Mm. Nobody wants to be called, uh, you know, prejudiced. Like they don't, they don't want that but they have to understand that they are there are things that we do unconsciously that that that's that's kind of that's what happens that's kind of how right. how we, we've been living for so long so I think that acknowledgement is so important in practical terms how do you put that self-awareness into a good place that it is it, you know it will bring forth you know better relationships and more constructive relationships between people from different races I say speak up speak up when you see something um if you hear Here's something. If you if you are at that shoppers and you and you don't see anything that you're like, you know what, my friends of color don't have anything here that would work for them. Maybe it's something I should bring up. You know, next time you're at the counter, just ask. You know, what are what are Do you, you doing sell black them? hair because products? It's always yeah. Exactly. You know, because it, it can't always be coming from the black community. We that's what allyship is about. It's gotta be, we can't just be fighting this on our own, you know. So it's got it's gotta be coming from others as well. And I think that's that's a crucial, crucial part of being an ally. Sadika, what what would you say about how your workshops kind of try to equip people with some skills to be allies? In order to learn and become Let's ask questions that will help you learn, educate yourself, and allow you to also become an ally. And that questioning that you have, you're also, when you, when you ask a question, it's everybody else around you too. You're not just by yourself that you're learning for and from. But let so, me ask you this, Sadika, because I think that there might be people listening to this who would have this thought, which, which immediately strikes me. Sometimes it's very hard to know whether I as a white person should ask a question of a person of color um, and whether that question is intrusive or ignorant or, you know, ill-phrased. I mean, I understand you're saying that to be an effective ally, and Moya said this too, you have to have more knowledge, yes. but how do we ask those questions in the right ways? Mm -hmm. That's so a really good question. Go ahead, Moya. Mm -hmm. 
I always say, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've been very open with my friends and, and, you know, I've told them, you know, if you want, ask me whatever you like, but I know not all people are like that. And, and a lot of people are like, no, come to me after you've done your own research, come to me after you've yeah. taken the steps for yourself to go and find that information and then come to me and then we can have a discussion about it. But I know that sometimes people feel, and I think you just mentioned this, that they shouldn't, you know, people of color shouldn't be the ones doing all the labor here. I think that this is a very fine balance. And as you've said, different people are different about this. Um, And so I think what you're saying, and in a way it brings us back to the very beginning of the conversation here, is that people need to be open and, and to try to, you know, show that they are trying to move forward and make some progress. Exactly. No, is that I- right? Yeah, that that I think that makes such a big difference. And I think um, more more people of color will be more open to having those conversations, knowing that they've done some initial work um, and and have done some and have grown their own personal knowledge. Yeah, I agree. Judy, I also want to mention that I think. Oftentimes when we are not sure if this is the right question, will I offend somebody? Will I say something wrong? What I usually say is that it's okay to say, I'm going to ask something that I'm really not sure is the right thing to ask here. Right. 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 It's about openness again. Yeah. And I think it's how you phrase it and being vulnerable with yourself as well that, look, I don't, I don't know. And I might be making a terrible mistake by asking this, but help me out because that just shows that you're willing to learn. That just shows that you, you, you're coming in with curiosity in the way you put it out there. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's a perfect way to, to end this fascinating conversation because we're back at the beginning of the importance of authenticity and openness. And I wish you both every success going forward with the important work you're doing. So there's a lot in that conversation that is so good and so important and I think so vital for for all of us to hear and really uh, think about. Um, and the first thing, and, and the three of you talked about this fairly early on, was the idea of discomfort. And Moy and Sadika were both talking about how they, you know, the way that they kind of get into these sessions is to acknowledge right off the, the top, to, to be vulnerable themselves and acknowledge that like, these are difficult conversations. Um, there's going to be discomfort. And I think that's really important. I think for far too long, in kind of the <laughs> among us white people for decades there's been kind of this reluctance to get into yeah. the more difficult and like have these difficult conversations and to feel uncomfortable about our own internalized and systemic racism and that's that's hard to do and it's really important to do or else we're not going to actually make any changes here and, and move right. forward. And I, and I was really struck how both of them, um, as teachers, as educators, you know, saw themselves as part of the learning process, too. I mean, Siddika talked about some of her discomforts historically, you know, with groups who were very different to herself. And I think that they both have such an honesty about it, um, mm. that that will really, you know, help people to feel relaxed. And, you know, I think 
as well, we have to face that it's inevitable we're going to have uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, unless the conversations are uncomfortable, we're probably not getting anywhere because, you know, pulling up things that we haven't really thought about in this way before is always going to cause us some discomfort, but it's time we did it. And, um, you know, I think that doing it with with a trainer like Moyer or a trainer like Sadika would feel like a very safe and a very, you know, welcoming experience. Yeah, I mean, clearly they they both, and I know many trainers like them are going out of their way to make to make these sessions as comfortable um, as possible for for people, which is very kind. <laughs> kind of ironic in the sense. I know that, that's know, what I mean. White people have been so comfortable for years and not yeah. so comfortable. We haven't even needed to have the conversations, yeah. and now we're obsessed with making us comfortable when we yeah. have the difficult conversations. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I think that it is something that inevitably people are going to feel, you know, a little afraid of doing. Yeah. For me, what, you know, I've been trying to kind of educate myself for the last number of years about this. And what one thing that has really struck me, and Moy and Sadika brought this up as well, is the idea of kind of unintentional versus intentional racism. And I think for a long time, so many of us have had this picture in our head of like, well, if somebody's a racist, they're like, they mean intentional. Yeah, they're like a Ku Klux Klan Mm. member. They're like out there deliberately Mm. racist. And I I think what is much more insidious and much more common is the unintentional racism that we all have because we're all steeped in a racist culture. And that's the systemic racism part. And for me, we were kind of talking about this a little bit ago. For me, in some ways that kind of takes away some of the fear and the guilt because it, it it's just kind of I can acknowledge like okay we've so all got it and, and we've all it's, got something, it. yeah. it's something that has been part of the way that we've grown up I mean I grew yeah. up in a exclusively white Christian community you know yeah. it took me a long time to meet anybody who was from any other group mm-hmm. and so you know we live and learn I mean I know that yeah. I have had in the past you know very anti-semitic Mm. attitudes about a number of things and then I met my husband who's Jewish and he pointed this out to me and it's like oh yes yeah. um, but you know that's that's about changing and I think that we yeah. should be open to the fact that we can all change and that you know we don't have to get too hung up about well why didn't I think about the think about think like this all my life as long as we're making the effort and yes. putting the work into change, I think that's really the message. Try to avoid that kind of defensiveness and just kind of think about, okay, they're not saying that I am inherently a bad person. They're just saying that I'm making a mistake that I can rectify. And then you, of course, have to take the responsibility to do that, to educate yourself, as Moya pointed out at the end. We have a responsibility to, right. to kind of do that learning. And, and I thought that her example of, of privilege, yes, being whether or products, not you had yeah. access to hair care products, was Mm. such a perfect example because Mm -hmm. what we're talking about here is dealing with those sort of more mundane yeah the everyday um, things everyday issues that we just don't even notice Mm -hmm. um, when we're somebody who has easy access to yeah yeah exactly and her kind of pointing out that you know that really that really kind of hit me that I think there's this general perception and sometimes when you get I think pushback from white people about the idea of privilege and kind of feeling like I'm not privileged I I didn't grow up in a mansion I didn't have a butler so that you know I'm not privileged and as she pointed out privilege is is more sophisticated than that it's lots of little yes and the hair products is a great example and of course there are multitudes of of other all kinds of examples yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so I really hope this conversation will you know spark other conversations in in 
in the people who are listening to this today. Me too. Welcome back to Another News. My name is Shannon Meikle, and I'll be your news correspondent for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. If you're not familiar, this segment recaps access to justice news from the last few weeks. This episode, we'll be talking about the province of Ontario's plan to combine courthouses across the GTA into one central courthouse, and about how people are reacting to that news. Next, we'll talk about an update to a story from last episode about the criticism that the Law Society of Ontario has been receiving regarding whether their actions actually contribute to injustice instead of justice. Finally, we'll talk about a piece of good news regarding the appointment of three new Superior Court justices in Ontario. First up is the Ontario government's action toward combining courthouses. Recently, the Ontario provincial government announced a plan to combine courthouses in North York, Etobicoke, and Scarborough into the new Toronto courthouse in downtown Toronto. Critics of this move have pointed out that doing so may make getting to court harder for marginalized and racialized communities. Specifically, it's being said that people on the fringes of the GTA already have fewer resources and are more likely to be disadvantaged socioeconomically or subject to other forms of discrimination. So closing local courthouses would take a resource out of those communities and make it even harder for people to see their day in court, because now people will have to pay more for things like transit and childcare, all while losing a full day's wages. The good news here is that the people speaking out against this move include Crown attorneys, lawyers, unions, and social justice advocates. However, as of yet, the province of Ontario hasn't changed their plan. Our second piece of news is an update to the discussion surrounding the LSO's ability to facilitate justice. If you haven't heard the previous episode where we talked about this issue, what you need to know is that the Law Society of Ontario is the highest regulatory body for legal practitioners in Ontario. And it's been criticized recently as some of their actions seem to actually decrease access to justice. Specifically, the LSO recently moved to, do, to decrease the capabilities of paralegals, even though there's evidence suggesting that paralegals are an important access to justice tool. And as I'm sure you're familiar, if you know the NSRLP, you'll know that there's massive barriers to justice and tons of people can't afford representation already. So getting rid of another resource like paralegals could be pretty disastrous. So the update to this situation is that a group of paralegals has submitted a motion calling for the LSO to be regulated under the provincial government. This situation is still developing, but the takeaway is that more and more people are speaking out against the LSO's contributions to barriers to justice. Our last piece of news for this episode is the Superior Court of Justice in Ontario's appointment of three new judges. Justice Moore, Tweedy, and Bingham are all women. And if you're not familiar with the typical makeup of judges' panels in Canada, you may not know that this is pretty good news. This is great news. Historically, the panel has been dominated by male judges. Even better, each of these new judges has a background in community justice work. Between them, they've advocated for children, marginalized groups, and victims of violence. 
Interestingly, one of the appointed judges, Justice Tweedy, is actually replacing Justice Alex Pazaratz. Uh, if you're not familiar, Justice Pazaratz recently released a very controversial decision about vaccination, which, by the way, the NSRLP wrote a blog about that you can read on our website. We've remarked before in these segments how the legal system changes slowly, but change can happen, and sometimes that change comes from the introduction of new voices. Hopefully, these new judges can help bring about some positive change in the Ontario legal system. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and join us next episode for another interesting discussion. 